Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are back into Revelation and uh, last week we are going to be pretty ambitious and say we're going to finish you know, chapter one, verses nine through 20, finish out the chapter. And uh, we got like four verses and we got to Jesus and we're like, okay, man, we need more time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what Jesus always takes more time, doesn't he? You know, it's uh, yeah, this is a, today's a lot of, a lot of Jesus talk. How do we want to kick today off as we dive into just this, these great descriptions, descriptors of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and this is going to be good because it's going to really help us say, yeah. how do we understand these sorts of things, the way he's described and what he's yeah. wearing and, and what's the significance of that? So I don't know, where yeah. are we going to go? Today? And the way John's written and everything else. Yes. All right. So just a couple of reviews. Chapter one, nine through chapter three, 22 is what I'm calling the first story, the first main section of the book. You know, you have your opening prologue in chapters one, one through eight. Then to nine, John's on Patmos and he sees Jesus and he turns to see the voice and he turns and he sees Jesus. Jesus tells him, write what he sees, send, send to the seven churches. And the seven messages of, of chapters two and three kind of comprise this first story, this first scene. And what we've seen is, of course, that the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And what we discussed a little bit last time was what John sees is Jesus in his, in his full glory, his resurrected, glorified Jesus who is Lord which is not really described anywhere else in the New Testament. So this mm -hmm. magnificent description of Jesus that we're going to just saturate our, ourselves with it with tonight and kind of look at it in some detail. But just to be reminded, it's the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that has put everything in, in the gear. Every, everything's begun by him. You know, I, I had a group recently I was meeting with, and like a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, so when's all this stuff actually going to begin? Are we in the middle of it or what? Mm -hmm. It's like, look, we're in the middle of it. We've been in the middle of it for almost you know 1,900 and something <laughs> years now. Then the next thing, of course, is that, you know, we're looking to look at this first description of Jesus in chapter one, uh, but this isn't the only, only description of Jesus. Obviously, there's a, the second coming passage in chapter 19 that I'll borrow some of this language, but it's some new stuff also. But there's ultimately 40 different descriptions of Jesus in the book of Revelation. You know, obviously, the titles like he's the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But let me ask you, Vinny. So if there's 40 different descriptions of Jesus in the book of Revelation, which one do you think is like the controlling image? Uh, this, is a, this is a quiz. I, I didn't give you the answer. I know you didn't. You didn't. I didn't. So um, well, of all the images of Jesus, what one becomes the one that is most significant in the book of Revelation? Do you, do you suppose? And we haven't gotten there yet. If That's a clue. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I, I kind of want to go with his first description, which is faithful witness, okay, because uh, you you, okay. you see that sort of thing play out like this is also what the people of God are supposed to be yep, doing yep, is right, overcoming. Yeah. So I, I, I want to say that, I don't know, that that's the one that pops out at me first. Right. And, that, and that's good. And the significance of that, of course, is that Jesus is the faithful witness because that's what we're called to be. And we'll kind of get to that tonight mm -hmm. also. Yeah. So I, I would say, though, and this is where I don't know if this is like, I don't know if I would see this this verbiage exactly, but you definitely see since he's you know, co-regency with God sitting on his throne, there's an aspect of sovereignty in terms of yes. like, okay, this is right. Jesus's so, kingdom. Yeah. Very, okay, excellent. So what's the controlling image that is used to, uh, to depict Jesus as the, this, the I'm going to lead you on the wrong path right now with this, <laughs> um, that, that would lead you to, what is the controlling image that's used to depict Jesus and the manner in which he rules? Okay. Uh, oh, the matter in which he rules. I, it, so I don't know if, if I'm going to get the right okay. verbiage that you want, right. but it's going to be, it has to be something passive. 
in, in the sense of how does he That's how bad. does he over yeah. Oh my gosh. Is that a clue? Oh, okay. Is that a clue? Well, it's, that's where exactly where I was going. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. That was such. That was the worst dad. That was a Bible dad joke. It was a Bible dad joke. It was, <laughs> was, bad, it was so awful. Dad, I was going to say he's he's this you know the slain lamb, one like a the slain lamb. lamb. This is how he overcomes, that's and right. this is the this is the uh, the image that we are also to follow as well. Exactly. So, exactly. So, yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We said before that the the word lamb occurs twenty eight times in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Some commentators will say that Jesus called the lamb 28 times. He's actually only called the lamb 27. One of the times lambs occurs is in regards to the, to the second beast. He had two horns like a lamb, but mm. he spoke like a dragon. So that the beast is imitating Jesus. But the other 27 are all about Jesus. He's only called the lion once. Well, he's mm. the lamb. And of course, mm. what you have to remember then is that ju- the book of Revelation and a lot of the New Testament, by the way, is anti-imperial. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's right into the church to say, you know, it might look like Caesar's in power. But he's not. Jesus is. So Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And the lamb is, I think, the controlling image. So let's, let's go ahead and pick it up where we left off last week. Let's go ahead and read 13 through 16 again. I know we read it last week, but that's, mm-hmm. that's, I think it's good to read it again anyway. So if, if yeah, I'll, I'll start in 12 just because that kind of yeah, kicks okay, off that's, the, that's the descriptor. Sure. Uh, so then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So he begins with, I saw one like a son of man. And again, don't get carried away with the word like. All John Mm -hmm, wants you to mm -hmm. do is to make the connection to the title son of man with Jesus. And obviously it's Old Testament context. Mm-hmm. Now, son of man and son of God are often titles that are misunderstood, but son of man, of course, was Jesus's favorite title for himself. Just and, real quick. Cause yeah, I think please. this is actually important. Cause you said it's misunderstood. It's it, it, would it, because it, popularly we often say because Jesus was fully God and fully man, when he says son of man, that's referring to his humanity mm-hmm. and yeah. son of God is referring to his deity, which it's kind of actually flipped, right? It is flipped, but they both, depending on the context. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. So son of God, of course, is the title for Adam. Mm-hmm. Adam is the son of God. So if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, it kind of goes from Jesus backwards and it ends with mm-hmm. Adam and it says, Adam, the son of God. Yeah. So son of God means human. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you're totally right on that point, right? Means human. Son of man can be the divine title from the book of Daniel that we're going to look at here in a, in a minute. But so here's the first point. The first point is that it's the favorite title of Jesus for himself because it basically means a prophet. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it's used in the book of Ezekiel. So the title son of man is used in the gospel, I think like 80, 81 times or something like that. The title son of man occurs in the book of Ezekiel 90 times. It's Ezekiel's way of referring to himself. So Ezekiel chapter two, verse one, it says, then he said to me, God, speaking of God, son of man, stand up on your feet that I may speak with you. So this is how God addresses Ezekiel. So it could be when Jesus was using son of man. Okay, no big deal. You're calling yourself a prophet along the lines of Ezekiel. I'll say this, Rob, I, reading through the notes today, like I, I'm f- a little familiar with Ezekiel, mm-hmm. but not fully. Okay. Uh, and I know that like Ezekiel is referred to as son of man and he's this prophet. But anytime I think of son of man, I'm automatically going to Daniel exactly. chapter seven. Yeah, exactly. And that's because that's the text that Jesus seems to have in mind in, mm-hmm. in the end of the gospels. When he says, yes, you're right. You'll see the son of man coming on the, on the clouds of heaven. And of course, that's what John uses here also. 
So let's go to Daniel 7. You want to read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14? The, the context is going to be important. And we're going to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how to understand Revelation in light of the ultimate context also. So I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. Now, Christians have jumped on this a little bit too quickly. They're correct in what they're ultimately asserting, that Jesus is claiming to be divine. But mm -hmm. the context is a little bit more nuanced than that. So in the book of Daniel, you have these four beasts that represent these four kings and four kingdoms. And it says that the four beasts are described in chapter seven, I think verses like three through eight. And then one of the beasts has uh, 10 horns and one of the horns like really nasty. And that gets a little bit more uh, airtime. Then you have this, almost this interjection with, oh, then I kept looking and I saw with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man. Now, the one who comes on the clouds, obviously Ezekiel chapter one and elsewhere, is God. God's mm -hmm. often associated as the cloud rider, the one who rides yeah. the clouds. He's a cloud by day and fire by night over the, the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tabernacle. So cloud rider is often God. So coming with the clouds of heaven is the first clue. But came, even, even, even yeah. outside of Hebrew writings, isn't uh, the cloud rider, like, isn't this a divine idea, even in other yes. uh, uh, yeah. Mesopotamian yes. uh, religions? Okay. Yes. Usually it's the storm god. Baal was the storm mm -hmm. god. Yeah. 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 So yeah, very good. And that's why it's what's interesting in the book of Revelation. I think chapter um, 14 says, yeah, I saw a white cloud. You're like, oh, because mm -hmm. they're always storm clouds. Which are not, we're not going to be white if they're a storm cloud. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just in case people didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but, well, uh, well, we're from California. So I'm from California. <laughs> white clouds. I'm from Arizona. We don't have any. So <laughs> exactly. Actually, we get a lot, a lot of storms. But uh, all right. So anyway, so Daniel 7, then he's coming up to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is clearly God. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the context, of course, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, uh, I kept looking and thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. So it's a courtroom scene. And we're going to talk about mm -hmm. the courtroom motif in the book of Revelation and in the prophets with a biblical scholar here in a, in a number of weeks to kind of understand how Revelation's picking up on this theme or this motif and how, how it impacts our understanding of the book of Revelation. But notice that it's a courtroom. God's sitting. Of course, verse uh, 10, the kind of the middle of the end of verse 10, it says the court sat and books were open. So it's a courtroom scene. And then all of a sudden, one like a son of man coming on the clouds comes up to the ancient of days. Now to him, verse 14 was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom and all the people's mm -hmm. nations and men of every language will serve him. Okay, cool. So he's given dominion, but what's happening in the book of Daniel and Daniel seven is you basically have this kind of this holy war taking place between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, God's the King. He's the ancient of days and his people are being described as the son of man. So the son of man is actually a collective noun for Israel in Daniel 7. Jesus went on to say, well, that actually, I am that representative of that of Israel, that that's me. I am the son of man as the embodiment of this representative. So Jesus takes it as an exclusive term for him. Whereas in the book of Daniel, it seems to be a collective noun. Because what happens, and if, you, if we were to go through Daniel 7, we'd see in more detail that the horn wages war against the people of God, against the saints, and he overcomes the saints. But then victory is given to the saints in verse 25. The Most High will speak to, speak about the saints, and he'll, verse 26, the court will sit in judgment. And sovereignty in verse 27 is given to all the peoples of the saints of the, most, of the highest one. There you go. That's the Son of Man. So 
Son of Man in the book of Daniel is this collective noun for the people of Israel, but it seems to have attributes that if somebody says, that's me, I'm embodying that, it could be a blasphemous claim because Jesus says, oh, that's right. And you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. If you're claiming to be the Son of Man, not in Ezekiel sense, but in Daniel sense, and not only as the one who embodies Israel, but as the one who actually has these divine attributes, because it goes on to say, and dominion and all these things will be given to him in verse 14. So that seems to be the way that Jesus is using it here. Jesus certainly uses it in Matthew 26 this way. Uh, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And so Jesus takes the term and applies it to himself in a very exclusive way that has attributes of, of God himself. Mm, okay. Yeah. Is it just to finish up Daniel, is this to go off your idea of the corporate element of it, mm -hmm. uh, at, at the very end of Daniel 7 and, and uh, 27, and this is like, you know, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kings under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high, their kingdom shall have an everlasting kingdom and uh, all dominions shall serve and obey them. So even like while it's God's kingdom, the ancient of days, who you have the son of man, who is Jesus coming in and doing this thing, but then it's also given to the people and their mm -hmm. co-regents. He's yep. in that as well. Yes, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Even and though we would... One I'm sorry. Of Revelation. You, you see that in Revelation, but yeah. but even though it's like, okay, you're co-reigning, but we also, there's a clear distinction on, even in Revelation, if we skip forward, but they're not the ones in the throne room scene in chapters four and five who are receiving worship. So you're Correct. reigning with God, but you, you're, there's still, a, we're not, there's not an egalitarian nature between God and his saints. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. But mm -hmm. that distinction is correct. The distinction is, yeah, but we're not God in the sense that we're getting worship. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to make the distinction so much because I think we want to, we'll stress this even on this episode today, that he, we are the representatives of mm -hmm. God himself on earth. And therefore, what's true of Christ, and generically speaking, at least of his, like he's the faithful witness and things of that nature, mm -hmm. is also true of us, or is supposed to be true of us also. Mm -hmm. It's just that don't deify ourselves to the point of which yes. we are actually beings of, of who are worshipped. Yeah. So in the same way, Genesis 1, when Adam is created, yes. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, they were reflecting Yahweh to creation because of the fall that's distorted. But guess what? Romans 8, uh, by means of the spirit, all God's people are now uh, conformed to the image of Christ. Yes. And yeah. so, so we're reflecting Christ. Yes. And it's, but it's more than I think than just reflecting because it's mm -hmm. actually taking on the role of God. So let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So humanity was made in God's image to rule, mm -hmm. not just to reflect God's image and oh, this is what God, but actually to do what God does. Mm -hmm. And so, I, so it's it's a the creation story is missional. It's a it's a call to do something, not just to be something. And I think so often we make it a be something. Oh, I have to be righteous. I have to be holy. I have to be nice. I have to be love. Well, that's true. But you also must do the mission of God. And that mission of God, of course, is to make God known and spread justice and love and mercy to his, to his creation. So I was going to mm -hmm. mention, though, in Revelation chapter 1, he has made us to be kings and priests mm -hmm. to our God. And of course, obviously, Second Peter chapter 3 says something along the same lines. All right, so yeah, now, yeah. as we go through the description of Jesus, we'll notice that there's actually two things that describe his clothing and then seven things that describe Jesus. And obviously, seven things, we shouldn't be surprised. And if you're looking, I'm not sure if you're looking at the Greek text, Vinny, if you have it available or not, but it's actually really clear that these two things are isolated from the seven things. So there's nine things all together in the description of Jesus, but the two items of his clothing, right, his robe and his sash, 
are then set apart from the description of who Jesus is as, as we move forward. So. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Okay, well, let's start with his description. So verse 13, he's in the midst of the lampstands uh, and he's clothed in a long robe. Uh, So let's start with that, the robe. Uh, And and it's not just merely a robe, it's a long robe. So I'm, I'm assuming that's distinct from a short robe. Yes, it is. And in the ancient world, um, the longer the robe, the more distinguished you are. Obviously, it's more expensive, right? More, more cloth and um, more, a greater expense. So long robes were robes of the dignitaries of the elite. Um, and your social status was dependent upon the length of your robe. And Christ's robe reaches down to his feet. Short robes and tunics, of course, were used by slaves and daily workers because they, you know, they, they needed them. That's kind of, they, they needed, they couldn't have their robe getting in the way of their work and they couldn't afford it anyways. But most specifically, it seems that the robe is being described in the sense of corresponding really with the high priest's robe. And the high priest, of course, is the one who tends to the lampstands in the book of Exodus, Exodus 28 and 29. Um, So it seems that that's the case. But at the same time, John doesn't make a big deal. He doesn't tie Jesus' robe to the high priestly robe too great. So he doesn't describe the vestments and the ephod and the turban Mm -hmm. and the crown and uh, or the color of the material. So he doesn't go on to describe the robe too, too much. So it's it's interesting that it's this robe of a dignitary that seems to correspond with the high priest's garments, but then he kind of stops and lets it go. Okay, cool. Hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. It's funny too, just a side note, as you mentioned, like the length of the robe will indicate like importance or power or something like that. And so I'm just thinking of like, I mean, in our lifetime, the biggest wedding event that existed was Princess Diana, right? And, and Prince Charles. Mm. Yeah. And so like things like that, like how long is the train on her dress? Mm. Uh, yeah, and so even there, it's like the same thing exactly as a oh, robe. Yeah. It's like you would see something like that in a very royal uh, uh, type of way in that wedding where you might not see that in the, you know, the wedding that's happening up the street yeah. from you. So anyway, it was just, I had images of like that. For, so oh, I never thought of amongst, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so the next description then is that he has uh, this golden sash around his chest. I don't know. We, we don't usually talk in sashes. Is is that? Uh, is there another way to translate yeah. that or a sash? Yeah, belt. So you could translate it as a belt. A belt. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's more of a sash than it's functioning as a belt. But so sash is probably a better translation. But again, this is something that the, uh, of status, person that's wealthy or a person more important, a dignitary would uh, would be wearing. Here's something interesting: the sash only occurs twice in the Book of Revelation. The second time is in chapter 15, verse six. And so in Revelation 15, in verse five, he says, I saw uh, the, the tabernacle, the testament of heaven was open. And then verse six, the seven angels who had the seven, ultimately the seven bowls, the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with a golden sash. Like, oh, hmm. surprising that the angels mm-hmm. are being described in the same way as Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you would say that there are seven features describing yep. Christ. Uh, yep. What is? What, where are those? All right. So the seven features, of course. What's interesting about the seven features that describe Jesus in this passage that follows, and my argument is that Revelation is a love story, right? It's, this is a love story about God's love for humanity. The cross of Christ was an, an example of Jesus's love and of God's love for us, and we're supposed to lay down our lives for the nations. 
to um, manifest God's love to the nations. But yet Jesus is described here kind of in terms of like the end times judge. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's, what's interesting. So on the one hand, let's kind of keep this in mind. He's writing to the churches. All right. And so he's got kind of this dual purpose. On one hand, it's like, hey, guys, hang in there and endure. Because as we get to the verses 17 and 18, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. But at the same time, he's writing to warn the churches to say, and when I come back, I'm also the righteous judge. Mm. So again, it's important to think because I think so many times this popular conception is that this is about a warning to the world, to the nations mm-hmm. of the world about what God's going to do in the, in the last times. Jesus is, or John's writing to the church and to the churches mm-hmm. and has kind of this dual purpose to encourage them to persevere and, and endure, but at the same time to remind them that Jesus is the righteous judge. So the very first description is that his head and hair were white like white wool. Um, and of course, uh, it's so white, in fact, it, it's like white wool as like, like snow, which and white hair is often a sign of wisdom. Leviticus mm-hmm. 19, verse 32 says, You shall rise up before the gray head and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God, because I am the Lord. And Proverbs 20 says something very similar. It says, The glory of your young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. So this idea of white hair or gray hair is a sign of wisdom, but... It's also what God's hair looked like in the book of Daniel. So go back to Daniel 7. And it says uh, in verses 9 and 10, the ancient of days took a seat. His vestiger was white like white snow and his hair, head of his hair like pure wool. And there you go. Jesus' head and his hair are white like wool, like white wool, like snow. Mm. So I think it's being describing Jesus in accordance with not just the son of man, but now we have a clear allusion to Daniel 7. He's actually being described in terms of, of the Ancient of Days. Okay. It starts working its way down now, and it talks about his eyes. It goes from his hair to his eyes, and they're like fire. Yeah. Uh, and fire, so fire is often misunderstood too. Fire can be purifying, right? It can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can take gold or whatever and get all the impurities out and melt, the, melt all the impurities away, and the gold's still there. But fire can also be judgment. If Jesus' head and hair were white like white wool, that means he's the righteous judge. He's sitting on the throne, and he's a mm-hmm. judge. And now his judgment is true and um, purifying because his eyes are like flames of fire. Now, interestingly, the, the word eyes occurs 10 times in the book of Revelation, which again corresponds with like, maybe you could say just justice and judgment. Obviously, the Ten Commandments would be kind of your standard of what the number 10 means. And Jesus' eyes are like flame of fire are used both here and then again in chapter 19. So in 19... It describes kind of what we might call the second coming of Jesus. And again, it says his eyes were like flames of fire. But the third time it occurs, so it occurs three times. The third time it occurs is in the letter of the church in Thyatira. He introduced himself as the one whose eyes like flames of fire. So again, just we have to keep in mind that John's writing to the church. And the message has to be understood as like, what is he saying to them? Not what is he saying to the world? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Verse 15, it says his uh, feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Yeah, so most likely this indicates something along the lines of his strength and moral purity. So I don't know if you remember, but in Daniel chapter 2. It's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar has a statue that's built, Mm -hmm. right? And the statue is like four parts, the head of gold. Mm -hmm. And oh, you Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you are the the head of gold. Well, the bottom of of, of the image, its feet have been mixed with clay and with iron. So they're, they're, it's kind of weak. It's not very strong. And imagine if you get this image with gold at the top 
And well, the whole thing is, is diminishing. Yeah, like yeah, all, all, yeah, all the property exactly. is diminishing. And if you think of it literally, though, it's like it's not going to stand very long. It's going to no, crumble because no. the weight of what's on top mm -hmm. and what's at the bottom isn't strong enough to hold it. So this is kind of the opposite. This is his feet were like burnished bronze. And so that, again, describes Jesus as a person of strength and stability, um, probably morally pure as well, because it's like burnished bronze. Uh, a friend of mine who's also a biblical scholar who wrote his uh, dissertation on, on the book of Revelation, Dr. Alan Bandy, says, Throughout the scriptures, the concept of refining metal frequently expresses judicial testing and purification. Hmm. So again, it, it continues the theme of judge and uh, coming to judge or describing Jesus as the righteous judge who judges injustice. Hmm. Hmm. Th this next one, the way his voice is described, I'm very curious because it's like there's multiple ways, like as I import what I think it means, it's yeah. like, I don't know which way to go with this. He had a voice like the roar of many waters. Is, is this supposed to be like, James Earl Jones, uh, like this awesome beefy voice, or is this indicating something else? Like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah. So this one's interesting. So one of the things that we're going to point out is that there's a lot of imagery from Ezekiel. So mm. the book of Revelation, almost every verse has an allusion to some Old Testament verse or verses, upwards of 600 of them, some, somewhere between 400 and 600, just depends on how mm -hmm. you count. There's only one actual direct quote from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. In, in chapter four, right? Holy, holy, holy. Well, I don't think, well, I don't know if, I guess you could say that's a direct quote if you want, but okay. usually it's the song of Moses, even though oh, okay, what then okay. follows is not the song of Moses. So it's okay. in chapter 15. But nonetheless, uh, what's interesting is that in terms of the number of actual references, the, what book is, is cited the most often or, or alluded to the most often, it's Isaiah. But Isaiah is huge, so it makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Ezekiel, I think, is second. And either the Psalms or Daniel's third or fourth, but there's no question that he's primarily working with Daniel for the most part. I mean, Daniel is a massive major player in terms of understanding what John's doing in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. But Ezekiel is a really, really close second in terms of what's important. So as we get to chapter four and five here, and I was going to say in a few weeks, but it'll be more than a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, a few months. Uh, we get to the uh, throne room scene in chapter four and five. John's going to describe all these what the throne looked like and the creatures that were around the throne. This is Ezekiel chapters one and two. And then the father's going to have a scroll in his right hand in chapter five of Revelation chapter five. That's Ezekiel chapter two. And then in Revelation chapter 10, John's going to be told to, to take the scroll and to eat it. Well, that's Ezekiel two and the, the beginning of three that Ezekiel's told to eat the scroll. So you see the, the framework of the beginning of the book of Ezekiel and how significant it is for the storyline of the book of Revelation. But at the end of the book of Ezekiel is this fame what we often call the eschatological temple, the end times temple. And if you just do the Google search or an Amazon search on the end times temple in Ezekiel, you're going to get all these books. It's horrible. Don't buy any, mm -hmm. please. Don't do the search. <laughs> but there are all these books about how Ezekiel's temple is going to be rebuilt because the temple that Ezekiel describes in chapter 40 through 47 has never been built before. And the reality is you can't actually build Ezekiel's temple because there's no, there's just not enough details. But there's another problem with that. And that is, there's no question that Jesus is that temple. The temple that's being mm. described there is actually Jesus. And we'll go to this in more detail later on, but we go to Ezekiel chapter 43, and it's describing this temple. And from the temple uh, are, is this watery um, river that comes from the throne of God. And the temple starts going out. And verse two, it says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Mm. And the earth shone with his glory. And then it goes on to describe this river that comes flowing out of it, which we'll get to, of course, in Revelation 22. But 
if you do a study of the Gospel of John, it's this river here that Jesus is talking about when he refers to the Holy Spirit. Woman, mm -hmm. you should have asked me, and I would have given you living water, and you would never thirst again. It's this river here. And when they pierce Jesus' side in John 19, and blood and water flow out, it's because Jesus is the eschatological temple of Ezekiel. Mm. And from that temple, Ezekiel 43, water flows out of it. Mm. And what's interesting, since I brought it up anyways, what's interesting in Ezekiel 43, if, you, if you're listening and, and you, you read it, is the river keeps getting deeper. So it flows out of the temple. It's like a trickle of water. It comes out under the temple and it goes out towards the east. But then the river keeps getting deeper and he keeps describing like it was like up to my knees. And then, then it became a river that I couldn't even ford. But rivers can't get deeper unless you have tributaries contributing to them. Hmm. But this is the temple that comes from the throne of God. There's no tributaries contributing to it. And what happens is whatever touches this river, whatever this river, river touches becomes pure. And to the east, of course, of Jerusalem, actually up and over the, the Mount of Olives, which is actually higher than the Mount, the Temple Mount. But you which, go over which it, rivers don't do that, and either. rivers don't go up over the temple yeah, over, yeah. over higher mountains. That's right. But and it goes then it goes straight downhill to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea and it says the Dead Sea Valley will become alive, hmm. and describes the Dead Sea as becoming living, which and, nothing can live in the Dead Sea, but it can when the temple waters touches it. So it's mm -hmm, this beautiful mm -hmm. imagery that obviously refers to the, to the Holy Spirit. And I think it, of course, it refers to the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. But the beginning of this passage begins with God's voice sound like the voice of many waters, right? Now, here's something, again, very important. And I'm going to point this out a lot. One of the things that John does, and I don't think a lot of commentators have picked up on this enough. They've picked up on it here and there. But the more I look, I'm finding it in a whole lot more places than most commentators have actually pointed out is that John will use a word like only two or three times or only in this passage and in this passage. You might use like five times in this passage and like once or twice in this passage. And when he does that, he wants you to link those passages together because that key word is only found in those passages. Hmm. So we have the phrase, a voice like many waters, three times. The first time describes Jesus' voice. Now turn to the second occasion, Vinny. I'm not sure if, you, if, you, if you're even aware of this. Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, verse 1, Jesus sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, verse 1, are the 144,000, that's from mm -hmm. chapter 7, the 12,000 from 12 tribes. They had his name and his name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, mm -hmm. like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard is like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne. Well, who's the they? I mean, whose voice is this? Well, keep going. And before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn this song except the 144,000. The voice of the 144,000 is like the voice of many waters. Now, the third occurrence of a voice like many waters is in chapter 19. Right? And this one's cool. Revelation 19. So Revelation 19, verse 6. Well, actually, let me preface this. Here we go. Verse uh, 1 of Revelation 19. Uh, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now, the great multitude are also from chapter 7. So in chapter 7, mm -hmm. you have 144,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, 12,000 each. But then you also have, at the second half of the chapter, a great multitude. And it says in chapter 9, from they were from every nation. Chapter uh, 7, yeah. In chapter 7. And Verse they were 9. uncountable. Mm -hmm. So it's, it seems like they contrast, but they're actually the same group. Mm -hmm. I'm going to argue that they're the same group. And here's yeah. another example of that. So you have this great multitude now in heaven. And they're saying hallelujah. And then verse six, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters. Mm. 
So many what the sound a voice like many waters occurs three times. The first time it's Jesus's voice, no question about it. The second time it's the voice of the hundred forty-four thousand. The third time it's the voice of the great multitude. Mm-hmm. Now this is a really really important point that I think people need to capture, and that's this: the people of God, the church, Christian. I don't care what you call them, but the people of I like saying people of God because it just kind of keeps continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have to worry about Israel church and what does that mean, and it's just just call them the people of God. The people of God are described throughout the book of Revelation as imitating Jesus. What's true of Jesus in many ways is true of us also. What Jesus does, we we do also. We're going to see that in the death of the two witnesses. We're going to see that just throughout the book of Revelation. That's why I think it was so important to say that the very first description of Jesus was the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. Of all the titles and attributes and characteristics of Jesus— Head and hair white like wolves, eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I mean, he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Of all the things that you could have talked about with Jesus, why is like faithful witness the first one? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's kind of mundane. It's because Jesus is the faithful witness. Now you go be one also. You go do so also. So we're going to meet this man named Antipas in the letter to Pergamum. Now, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, depends on how you want to translate it. It could be translated as the faithful witness. He did what Jesus did. And so it's very important to understand that we're described in ways of Jesus. And think about this way. In Matthew 25, when Jesus says, when he returns, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he says, what's going to happen is he says, the sheep are going to go to the left and the goats on the right and here's, or whatever, vice versa, whatever it might be. And he's going to say, well, these are my sheep, and it's because I was naked and they clothed me. I was in prison and they visited me. I was hungry and they fed me. And like, well, Lord, when did we do that to you? And he says, whenever you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. The people of God are the embodiment of Jesus on the earth. What you do to God's people is what you do to God. And that's an important message for us to understand that that's actually our role. It's a mission again. It's our missional role is to be the image bearers of Christ and to make Christ known by imitating him. And one last example, and that is Jesus says that when we love the least of these, when we love our enemies, when we love the the poor and the oppressed, we are acting like God who loves sinners also. Hmm. And he says, in fact, you'll be called sons of the most high. Whoa. You'll be called the sons of God or children of God because to be a son of means to have the attributes, qualities, and characteristics of the person of whom you are the son of. If we're the sons of the Most High, when we love, it's because we're doing what God does. And so I think this is a really important point to understand that we are described in the same way that Jesus is because we are to imitate Christ. And it's not just in our words, it's obviously in our actions also. Hmm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. In verse 16, it kind of finishes out this descriptor, and it says, in his right hand, which I'm assuming is significant that it's his right hand and not just in his hand or in his left hand, but in his right hand, he had held seven stars, seven stars in his right hand. And this comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, verse three. And of course, in chapter one, verse 20, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So it signifies Jesus as the one who's sovereign over the churches. 
And this is one of the few times where uh, John will actually he'll he'll give some symbolism and then he'll actually define he'll decode that for yeah. us or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't like decode too much. Decode. I yeah, mean, yeah. I know what you yeah. mean. Though. But he'll explain. In what chapter he means, one, verse or... twenty, he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches, mm-hmm, and the seven mm-hmm. stars are the angels of the seven churches. Yeah. And some will say, oh, whenever Revelation is not literal, John tells us that. And it's like, no, John's telling us how, how to interpret it. And every time yeah. he tells us, it's always some symbolic meaning or some meaning yeah. that transcends the, the literal meaning. So, yep, that's right. Yeah. Now it, it continues on. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Yeah. All right. So the sixth one is the sharp, sharp two-edged sword. Yeah, the sharp double-edged sword is certainly the word of God. It's the words that he proclaims. It indicates he's coming again. He's coming as the judge. And though this is one of the attributes of Jesus that's actually repeated in chapter 19 and the description of Christ at his return. Um, and, and here's, here's something that's significant now. And that is in Isaiah chapter 11, let's look at these two, two verses, Isaiah 11, verse four and Isaiah 49, verse two. In Isaiah 11, verse four, it says, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He'll decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Now, of course, you might recognize, of course, 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, refers to Jesus at his return, defeating his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Isaiah 49, verse 2 says basically the same thing. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. The, one of the questions then becomes this. And that is when we take this imagery, which is violent imagery, it's imagery of violence. It's imagery of Christ coming as a righteous judge, as a righteous king to strike his enemies as a messianic conqueror. The question is, do we take that imagery in the literalness of which it was in the Old Testament context, or do we read it through the Christ event of the New Testament? And this is a big debate, a big debate. You're going to get a lot of scholars who are going to say, oh, no, John's totally retaining the, the, the uh, Old Testament context. And my answer is, no, he doesn't. He mm. just simply, uh, he sings the song of Moses. We re- referenced this earlier. He sings the song of Moses, or they sing the song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15. And then the words that follow are not the song of Moses. Mm-hmm. And what they are is a couple of Old Testament passages through the lens of Jesus. And most specifically, it's including the nations uh, in this covenant work. So you see throughout the, throughout the book of Revelation, a number of places where this Old Testament context actually is transformed in light of Jesus. And so I think what you have in the description of Jesus, like in Revelation 19, he's coming, he's described on riding, riding a white horse. He's clearly this end times judge, this righteous ruler who's coming to destroy his enemies. And he will tread the winepress, the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. But the only weapon he has is the sword that comes from his mouth. It's not the sword that's in his right hand. In his right hand are seven stars. And his mouth is a sharp sword. And that means it's his words. He speaks and it's done. He's not like waging war and cutting people up. That's, that's imagery that's used. But I don't, I don't think he's retaining that Old Testament passage, that Old Testament context. I think he's reading the Old Testament in light of the Christ event and transforming the imagery in light of, in light of Jesus. So you wouldn't say that this is about divine violence then? No. That's another way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Right. And the question of divine violence, I think, is actually a misnomer a little bit because the idea is that it's either divine violence or it's not divine violence. And it's not an either or. So the idea is that fact is, is Revelation describing God's wrath upon the world and the wicked. 
And I think that answer is no. We'll discuss why I think that's no um, throughout the seals and the trumpets especially. But I don't deny the fact that God is a righteous judge and that he's coming mm -hmm. to judge his enemies at the, at the end. And it's certainly described in language of violence. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. But at the same time, that language has to be understood through the Christ event. And that Christ event language means, guess what? It's Jesus as the one who suffered violence, not as the one who inflicts violence. Hmm. So finally, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so this is the seventh description of Jesus as uh, who he is now. And again, note when we get to chapter four and we describe God or John describes God sitting on the throne, he actually never describes God. He describes the, what he, there was like an emerald around the throne, like a rainbow and all the creatures around the throne, but he never describes God on the throne. Mm -hmm. And of course, remember Moses was never allowed to see God. No one can see God and live. But as we noted before, when we get to Revelation 22, it says we will see his face mm. and his name will be on our forehead. All right, now, the text actually does not say his face was like the sun shining in its strength. The Greek actually implies that it was his appearance was like the sun, uh, was like was shining like the sun. And what's interesting is there doesn't seem to be any really particular Old Testament reference in mind here. In other words, all the previous descriptions of Jesus seem to come from the Old Testament as we've been discussing, but this one seems to be more like the transfiguration of Jesus. So in Matthew 17, uh, Matthew says uh, Jesus's face, and does say face there, shone mm -hmm. like the sun and his garments became as white as light. That's Matthew 17, verse two. So that might be, and again, it's hard to argue that it is for sure because Matthew does use face and John uses a, the word for appearance here. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it seems to, to fit there. So again, note Revelation 21 now, when we get to the, to the description of the, of the New Jerusalem, it says, Revelation 21, verse 23, it says, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is the glorious presence of God in the resurrected Jesus appearing before John. So guess what's going to happen? Let's go ahead and read verses 17 and 18 and kind of finish this up. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is similar to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, mm -hmm. chapter six, Isaiah is brought before the throne of God. He's high and lifted up and the, his robe reached down to the floor and he's like, oh my goodness. And there's cherubim I'm all around him. And he's like, Isaiah's response is, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. And this parallels the book of Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel chapter one, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. I, this is just, I, I think you're lucky to be alive. So of course you're going to mm -hmm. fall on your face as though, as though you were dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it, he also says, uh, don't be afraid, which just seems like a common this is what you would hear often from, from an angel or an Old yeah. Testament manifestation, whether it's God or Jesus, whoever it might be. It's this idea of like, don't be, don't be afraid. Yeah, because what you don't know is if God's appearing and you are a man of unclean lips, what's this going to mean for you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the angelic word or the word of Jesus or whatever it is here is a word of comfort. Hey, look, don't be afraid. So in Daniel chapter 10, so you got to remember, 
John is very, very, very much dealing with Daniel 7 through 12. So again, remember mm -hmm. Daniel's one through six of the stories of Daniel and his buddies and all that good stuff there that set the context for the apocalyptic vision of Daniel 7 through 12. And this apocalyptic vision of Daniel 7 through 12 is very much on John's mind. And we saw we saw the, the ancient of days and the one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7 already. So now in Daniel chapter 10, an angelic being appears to him. And Daniel says, verse 10, Daniel 10, verse 10. It says, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I've now been sent to you. And when he spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said, don't be afraid. Verse 12. Don't be afraid. From the first day that you set your heart on understanding, I was sent to you. So again, this words of comfort, because you, you don't know, you, you know, you deserve judgment and you know, you're a person of unclean lips. So uh, is this, is this a good meeting or a bad meeting? It's like being called into a meeting with your boss and you don't know a reason why. Hey, Vinny, I want yeah. to speak with you in 20 minutes. Like, okay, um, is this good or bad? Don't, <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you're an, a boss, don't ever do that. Yeah. Let your employee know why you're calling them in. Exactly. Even, even if it's bad, just tell them. Yes. Yep. Vinny, you're in trouble. Uh, 20 minutes in my office, right? Yep. It's better than just, hey, Vinny, 20 minutes in my office. And then the next 20 minutes, you're like, your blood pressure's us through the roof and everything else. So, all right. <laughs> that's my... That's my um, counseling advice for the day today yeah there you go so he did say you know fear not i am the first and the last the living ones we talked about this a little yeah. bit last time yeah yeah so uh and we have talked about this before and it's really cool we talked about this already so the alpha and the omega the first and last of course as we discussed comes from the book of isaiah it also comes from the book of deuteronomy uh, comes from the book of exodus that god is the one who's eternal uh, alpha and omega convey eternality before the alpha after the omega first and the last are used always of Jesus, which is interesting. Chapter one, verse 17, he's the first and the last. Chapter two, verse eight, he's also the first and the last. In chapter 22, verse 13, he's the first and the last. In chapter one, verse eight, we saw this before. God says, I'm the alpha and the omega. And that title is used three times, alpha and the omega. In one eight, and then in 21, six. And in 21, six, God says, I'm the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end. Really interesting because the first time the father's called the alpha and the omega. The second time is the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end. And then in 22, verse 13, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All three titles appear. But it seems like all three titles are used of Jesus in 22, verse 13. So I think mm -hmm. that's kind of just the way John has crafted this is actually is really, really, really beautiful. So mm -hmm. uh, he's the first and the last. He's the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And again, now, as we discussed already, it's so important to understand that John is in many ways, he's reading the Old Testament story through the lens of Jesus and through the Christ event. For John, the Christ event has begun the last days of Daniel, as we discussed already. The last days of Daniel have begun. So it, it is soon, meaning it's now here, and it's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's really important because some people are going to try to argue, you know, this, this common popular idea of the seals, trumpets, and bowls. That's all some futuristic stuff. Mm-hmm. But it says in chapter five that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. If he's worthy to open the scroll because he was slain, then he's worthy to open the scroll like now, like it's already mm -hmm. been opened. So I think we have to understand the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the true king of kings, not Caesar, because he was dead and he alive forevermore. Mm. He, uh, finishes up by saying i have the keys of death mm -hmm. and hades yeah now the question was like all right so we have to ask this question like well why would he say that I mean, what's the significance of that statement 
in terms of the message to the to the, the readers and the readers are the seven churches it's mm-hmm. not to the nations or to the pagans or to the world out there about what's going to happen at the end times it's to the churches and i think what he's telling them is this hey guys if they kill you it's no problem because i was dead and i'm alive forevermore <laughs> oh and by the way i got the keys of death in hades what can happen to you so uh, i think um I put down in the notes there uh, a quote from uh, Gordon Fee, uh, mm-hmm. who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, you know, a great preacher in the black tradition once told it on Easter Sunday, who was playing the role of Satan and shouted to the demonic host, he's got away, he's got away, and he's got the keys. You know, I just, I just kind of like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus got away. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. What can they do? Why are you afraid? Or, you know, Matthew 6, what I think is so central to understanding the book of Revelation, that is. Why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? Because they're going to kill me. And Jesus answers, but I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. And oh, and by the way, I got the keys. Therefore, seek first his righteousness and his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. So I just think that's um, really neat to, to kind of put those two passages together. Yeah. W- would you make a distinction between death and Hades? Well, if we do make a distinction between death and Hades, then we would say... Um, Death is like the state of the dead. Mm-hmm. They're dead, right? It's the grave. Um, and Hades would be um, the place where the spirit is gone. You know, Hades is the place of the dead. So we're going to see that um, Hades is going to be emptied out at the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter mm-hmm. 20. Uh, chapter 20. So, because yeah. I was going to ask about that, because in, in 20, it, these things are dumped into the lake of fire. Yeah. Uh, so without getting into a whole eschatological thing, we could probably save that for eventually yeah. when we get to chapter 20. Uh, we would say like, hey, there's distinctions here, but for all intents and purposes, this is just, this is all on the, the end side of the equation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Verse 19, he says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. How, how does this connect to the, the rest of the book, especially when we look at those seven messages that happen in chapters two and three? the throne room scene of four and five and in some traditions, you know, especially in the dispensational aspect, four and five are a future rapture thing. Um, you know, what, what is he capturing here and how does that relate to yeah, even right. going back to verse three, we're saying like, blessed are those who hear and obey these things. So right. like, how, how does that just fit together in terms of applying this to our lives? Yeah. So some people take the statement in chapter one, verse 19, as like the key indicator of the structure of the book. And they say, write what is now, that's Mm -hmm. the seven messages to the seven churches in chapters two and three. And what will take place later, that's chapter four and following. Now that makes sense. The problem with that is it doesn't fit. It just simply doesn't work. So um, first off, the messages of chapters two and three that we're going to begin discussing, I think next week, are highly linked and highly related to chapter four and following. And we'll discuss that next week. And so what really is happening then is what John's describing is what is now and what will take place later actually refers to the messages of the seven churches. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So verse 20 says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Yeah. Uh, so John, it, we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but this is one of the few times where he tells us uh, what these things actually mean. And, and like you said, this oftentimes becomes the thing where people say, well, see, he wants us to know that it's, uh, it's this is happening yeah. here. Yeah. But it's like, no, he's just, he's, he's rolling it out to say like, okay, 
this is what's happening. This is symbolic. And I take this as meaning, okay, now you guys got it from here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's also saying, I don't want you to miss this one. So yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So let's start from, from scratch here. So you know what I'm talking about. The seven lampstands mm-hmm. are the seven churches and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Yeah. So mystery throughout the new Testament, of course, always refers to something that was uh, previously veiled, but now has been revealed but it's almost always something that's been revealed in like an ironic manner, like in a manner that you wouldn't have expected. Mm. So Paul will say, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. Mysteries in the New Testament are always revealed, never something that's veiled. So the idea that, oh, this is a mysterious thing. We have to figure out what it means as it begins to happen is not what's going on there. So in light of this, because this is a lot of symbolizing and trying to you know look at the Old Testament background, and that's great what are takeaways in terms of like, okay, how am I blessed to hear and mm-hmm. keep this section? Yeah. 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 What, what, let's start with you. What, what are some things that you are thinking of here first that you would walk away? Like if you're talking to a class or your Sunday school class, or you're, or you're preaching a sermon or um, you're, you're leading a study or whatever, or even your own private study, what are some things that you take away from this in terms of application of the description of who Jesus is and what John's trying to tell his churches through his vision of Jesus? Well, I think in the description of Jesus part, you're, you're struck with this awe and wonder mm. that we the later see in, especially in chapter four, that's given to the father. Um, but it's like, man, you are worthy to be worshiped because of this. Mm. Right. And, and so there's like, it's starting like in a Christ centered kind of way where it's like, okay, that that's why you are important. But then from a church standpoint, he's holding the churches he's amongst the churches mm, and so mm. the the one who is just so worthy and sovereign and this priestly kingly figure is also amongst us mm. and and you it's it's not this deist thing where he's just distant uh, yeah, right, or something right. like that it's like no he's here yeah. uh, and, and he's aware of where we are at and he right. wants good for us and, and so it's like there's just that personal I don't want to just call it motivation because that seems to, uh, you know, you could run out of motivation and need to get motivated again, but there's like, it's like the ultimate purpose statement, right? Mm. Yeah. 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 It's powerful. That's really good. Um, yeah. I start with that. This is a message of hope Mm. that you can overcome, you can persevere because I did. And the worst they can do is kill you, but that's okay because I got the keys of death in Hades and I was dead mm. and I'm alive forevermore. Mm. So hang in there and encourage. Now, what's interesting is, you know, at the end of the book, it says, I'm going to give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Mm-hmm. And that without cost thing, you're like, well, I, hey, you know, I mean, I don't, when we turn our faucet on to get water or get water of our fridge or wherever, wherever we get our drinking water, we don't usually think about the, it's the cost is so minimal. I don't really think about whether I have enough money and I can afford this glass of water now, but there's people that can't afford a clean glass of water. Hmm. And for them, this has incredible meaning. In other words, the more desperate we are, the greater the hope is. Right, so um, I'm not sure if I discussed this with you or not, but the study that I did that I'm doing on Zoom that's now on the YouTube page, the very first night we started the study, I, we read Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. And I said, I think this is really significant because we talk about God coming in justice and Psalm 96 and 98 both kind of begin with this, like sing to the Lord, a new song, sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord and bless his name and proclaim the good tidings. It's, Tell of his wonderful deeds among all the nations. It's like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Why is the psalmist like so happy here? Ascribe to the Lord glory, ascribe to the Lord strength and glory to his name. 
And then you look down at the last verse of Psalm 96 and it says, before the Lord, he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then Psalm 98 does the same thing. Sing the Lord a new song, right? And then look at what happens in the, verse, in the last verse. It says, before the Lord, for he's coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with right, righteousness and the peoples with equity. And if you are one of the 90% in the Roman Empire that is oppressed, and that's the whole point. John's going to make this major point. The, the harlot Babylon, in her was found the blood of saints and prophets and apostles and of all who have been slain in the earth. She is an oppressive system. Rome is oppressive. And most of the world of people are oppressed. Mm. And the coming of Christ and the description of Christ, now hang in there and endure, is just this word of hope and encouragement. And the more oppressed you are, the more encouraged you are. So I, and if you've ever lost a loved one, you think of, okay, all right, I can endure because there's, there's, there's resurrection hope and there's res resurrection life. So even as you said that you're talking about the greater the despair the greater the hope right so even how we read a story i'm i'm struck by uh, and this is something i was even exposed to a little seminary where you know how in, in oftentimes in those higher level classes mm -hmm. you don't just study a topic but then you say to, you study okay what's maybe a minority perspective on this or mm -hmm. a, a gender perspective or something like that so looking at something like the exodus where you know in as growing up in a middle class white neighborhood you like i've heard this exodus story my whole life in vbs right. and all that and it's just this really cool story and you watch the 10 commandments and it's entertaining and it's history and all this kind of stuff whereas you look at something like the exodus story in the american black church and it takes on this completely different yes, meaning of hope yes. uh, yeah. because it's like and i'm talking black church going back to uh, you know, transatlantic slavery all the way through the civil rights movement. And it was like, that story takes on a completely different meaning in terms of the hope uh, that it produces because of yeah. the despair that they're actively experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're longing for an exodus. Yes. Yeah. 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 I guess the one last point that I would like to make was just to reiterate that the description of Jesus is also corresponds to the mission of God's people, that what mm -hmm. we're called to do, we are called to imitate Jesus and it's not just in our words, it's in our life and who we are by loving our neighbor, by loving our enemies. Um, I think that's so significant. So, yep. Mm, good stuff. All right. So, hey, are we going to get into chapter two next week? Well, we are going to begin next week with the seven messages of chapters two and three. And we're going to actually okay. interview a scholar, Dr. Mark Wilson, who's the leading voice on this archaeology of the seven churches. And so we're going to kind of let, we're going to let Mark give us a little bit of a context with the seven messages. And then we're going to really get into the seven messages and we're going to, I think we're going to spend some time in them because I think it's so important. The seven messages are really significant for what happens later on in the book. So, yep. Yeah. And Dr. Wilson, as great of a scholar is, he might be a nicer guy than he is a scholar. And he's a great scholar. He's a nice <laughs> so, guy. Yeah. 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 So really great. Nice yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We're going to have some other guests on that won't be as nice as him. Yeah. Like Alan Bandy and <laughs> stuff like that. But Dana Harris was great. Yeah. I'm going to keep that in for him. Dana it's... Harris was great. Mark Wilson was great. So, yep. <laughs> nice. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you guys next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.